You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to American Theatre's Off Script, our podcast and live stream on all things theatrical. It's Friday, December 15th, 2023. I'm Rob Weiner-Kent, the Editor-in-Chief American Theater, my pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you from the Lenape lands of Queens, although behind me is uh, the theater space at Dad's Garage in Atlanta, and you'll find out in a second why why that's behind me, virtually. And I'm here with... I'm Gerald Pierce. My pronouns are he, him. I am the Chicago editor, uh, and I am calling in from the traditional homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, as well as many other nations in an area we now call Chicago. Awesome. Great to be in conversation with you. This is our, our final, you know, uh, podcast of the year and our sort of holiday special. <laughs> we missed Hanukkah. That just ended. Uh, but uh, we're we're happy to, to this, this will be going out in the airways while we're all in the midst of the Yuletide uh, uh, cavalcade. And, and included in that, we're today, our, our guest today, our first guest is Topher Payne, playwright, performer, director, jack of all trades. Uh, who's right in the midst of a show called Yallmark, which is an improvised uh, comedy show at Dad's Garage in Atlanta. Been going on for some years, I believe. And he, he knows whereof he speaks and satirizes because he's he's written a bunch of Hallmark movies himself. So can't wait to talk to him about holidays, Hallmark, and all that. Uh, he also spent a number of years as Crumpet in the Santa Land Diaries. So he knows he knows from holiday shows. Uh, We'll also speak to, uh, we have a taped interview that Calendra Smith, our editor based in Atlanta, who's not in town right now, she talked to Linda Armstrong, a theater critic for the uh, uh, New York Amsterdam News. Um, so that conversation, will go to that after we speak to Topher. But first, we'd like to just let you know a little bit about what we've been writing about um, over the past month since our last off script. Um, I'm going to kick it off talking a little bit about some global coverage. We've written a lot about international and global um, theater makers. It's been part of our mandate for years. Uh, American Theater has always been a, a magazine about the American theater, but also of the theater looking out to the world. And so um, the Nobel Prize for Literature went to John Fosse, uh, not Bob Fosse, John Fosse, uh, a wonderful uh, Norwegian writer who has had a couple plays done here a series of plays done here, almost all of them translated, I think all of them translated by Sarah Cameron Sunday, who wrote about, we've written about before, and who uh, we reprinted a piece from a Norwegian paper that was translated for us about her work translating his work uh, here and her relationship with him and his very interesting theater. Uh, there was also some bunch of stuff in New York Times because he's also a novelist. So he's he's an international sort of star we claim a piece of him as a theater artist as well. So that check out that piece trans, about trans and also the insight she gives into the ups and downs of translating are fascinating. I, th I think we take for granted, uh, uh, you know, the art of translation is not just a one-to-one -one thing. It's there's a lot of interpretation artistry in it. So take a look at that. Um, we also had a report from uh, the folks of Theater Mitu, which is a Brooklyn-based international theater, who went to the uh, Theater Festival in Warsaw, 
and reported on the, the work they saw there. That's continuing a tradition of Eastern European theater. Uh, it wasn't started entirely by my predecessor, Jim O'Quinn, but he was he went to Poland several times. I've never been to Poland, uh, but it's, a, it's an area of, of theater that we've covered. And for a long time, people who watch international theater will, could tell you that Poland has been one of the leading uh, theater countries in the world. So this was no exception. It's a great report on what they're doing there. Um, obviously, right now, our focus uh, on the world stage is uh, a big part of it. And the headlines we're looking at are about the the tragic and awful war in Israel and Gaza. And so we've had a little bit of reporting. We don't really report on war zones per se, but when it affects theater folks, that's our that's our beat. So just yesterday, we had Amelia Merrill, one of our wonderful writers, report. I think it's the only American uh, outlet I've seen report on the the uh, arrest of three members of the Freedom Theater in Janine in the West Bank. Uh, one of them has been released, but two of them still seem to be in detention. Um, it's, it's a it's a harrowing story. And Amelia also, right before that, wrote a piece uh, talking to a couple of Jewish American theaters, Theater J and Six Points Theater, and a few other Jewish theater artists, Jewish American theater artists, about how the war and concerns about the war and the di dialogue about the war is affecting their work and their communities. Last week, we ran a piece by Mandy Tahiri talking to uh, Middle Eastern and Arab theaters, Golden Thread, uh, Silk Road, not a, not a Silk Road Rising for that piece, but also Noor Theater here in New York with a similar angle, how, how the war and the concerns it's raising are affecting their work and how it's making its way into their lives and their theater work. So definitely check that out. It's obviously, unfortunately, not something we're gonna stop writing about, not something that will stop needing to be written about. Um, and briefly, on a slightly more upbeat note, um, I wrote, uh, put together a roll call of some of my, well, some of th these aren't my favorite theater artists because I don't know them, but about one of my favorite theater towns, uh, Los Angeles, a uh, place where I got the theater bug. I'll buy you a drink sometime and tell you the story of how LA was the place where I discovered theater. <laughs> but in any case, there's a lot of great theater artists, and we did a wonderful roll call of a bunch of folks out there. I talked to a bunch of people I know about who, who the next generation of interesting people are. So, JR, tell us about, what, about some other stuff we've written. Yeah, uh, first I did a Q&A with Adriana Desir Durant, who is the new managing director of Raven Theater Company in Chicago, which is one of my neighborhood theater companies that I have lived nearby. And uh, she also lives a few blocks away and has for years. So she's joining her neighborhood theater company as their new managing director. And we chatted about her really varied background working with arts companies, including dance companies and theaters, as well as doing strategy for like large name brands like Nike and Pepsi, and how all of those experiences are carrying over as she joins a company that seems like it's ready to continue expanding, that it's ready for a bigger and better like next new chapter. Raven recently became a, an equity theater company a, a couple years ago. And so it looks like they're ready for the next step. And so that was a fun Q&A to do with her. And then uh, the next piece I would love to talk about is Nataki Garrett actually wrote an op-ed for us, making a strong case for theater and the arts as more than just aesthetically pleasing or intellectually stimulating, but quite literally healing. And so Nataki talked about 
the interdisciplinary efforts to marry arts and health and healthcare and made a, a compelling case encouraging the field to nurture and build on this work as we, we move forward. Uh, and then the, the last piece I wanted to talk about is another one of the pieces that are part of the of TCG's Thrive Uplifting Theaters of Color initiative. This one written by another member of the Rising Leaders of Color cohort, Amanda Andre. Uh, for this, Amanda spoke with leaders of Safe Harbors NYC, New Native Theater, Eagle Project, and Ikiduin Youth Ensemble about how, uh, how they as Native and Indigenous theater artists care for and cultivate and cult uh, the stories and culture of their communities and how they help tell those stories and for their community and keep their community safe and, and cared for. So yeah, I'll toss it back to you, Rob. That's a great uh, segue for me. Thank you for setting me up for that. Uh, because the some of the, the things that I've been working on for the past couple weeks or even months, and I'm about to put the final touches on the final part of it, is Todd London's giant three-part series on Larissa Fastors and Cornerstone Theater has spent the past couple of years in Lakota, Dakota territory in South Dakota, around that area near Rapid City, in the Black Hills, making a show the way Cornerstone does. Cornerstone makes shows with communities in which they do story circles where they talk about what, what they'd like to see. They sometimes adapt classics or, or classic myths, or, or in this case, uh, Native American myths, into, uh, into a story. And then they often have professional actors work alongside and professional sets that work alongside the folks in them. Anyway, I, Cornerstone is another, that's one of the theaters that made the, the, that is the reason that LA was one of the places I caught the theater bug, because that's where they built a base for me a long time. But this is an amazing, granular, very bumpy, very beautiful uh, sort of travelogue diary about how these, how these plays were put to, how this play was put together. It's one play, but it feels like, it feels like many, it feels like a lot, a lot of, it contains multitudes. Um, anyway, they're long. There's a two-part series it's called Superheroes on Native Land. Two-part series. The third third part should be out before the holidays next weekend. This is my plan. So definitely check those out. And the final thing I'm going to plug is, you know, this was our first year in print uh, since 2020. We had a fall issue. Please subscribe if you want to support our work. Go to americantheater.org slash join to subscribe. You can also get individual copies at the Drama Bookshop in New York. Um, but pretty much the way to get it is to subscribe. But we also still do a lot of online uh, reporting and publishing. And so we put together our annual roundup of the most popular posts and then the 10 most popular posts in terms of metrics, Google that, Google, Google, Google Analytics told us you read the most. And then our own curated list of the, of the stories we 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 also liked. We also liked a lot of the top ones, but with the ones we thought they could have used more love and more traffic, and hopefully this piece will get them more traffic. It's it's a it's a it's a real sort of journey through the year to read to read this uh, to read this uh, roundup. Uh, not least because you know the, some of the top ten posts, unfortunately, were about the crisis and contraction and cancellations and closures of theaters uh, over the past year, the labor crunch that helped lead to some of the problems with theater. But there was also plenty of celebration, continuing to cover the work. Um, and as uh, some of your Chicago colleagues, uh, JR put it in one of the, the 11th most popular story of the year. So it had to go into our favorites list, not the, not the top posts. 
uh, decentering the doom narrative. So uh, definitely read that if you want to get a picture of this crazy year we've just been through. Speaking of a crazy year, I I think we're going to segue now to Topher Payne. Topher, welcome Hi, to Oscar. guys. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I love that the inspiration virtually. for bringing me in is, well, it's been a crazy year, and therefore, <laughs> Topher Payne. <laughs> I I just love to know. Uh, so Yalmark started uh, performances last week, and I would just love to know what the energy is like right now after the, all that we've been through for the past couple of years and this year. What's it's, it like in the room? It's really been extraordinary. I tell you, I um I was not one of the uh, playwrights who was lucky enough to um, have found a prolific impulse during the pandemic um, and during lockdown. Um, I have uh, friends and colleagues who I was stunned by their output. It turned out they really did just need time to sit down and write. And I'm like, well, <laughs> good for you. Um, and that was not my experience of it. I discovered um, to my chagrin and then reflection that um, the interaction with an audience, the mentorship of the audience was a really key piece of my development as a playwright. And uh, I came back to playwriting this year, but in the meantime, I had Yolmark, which was in 2020, we did it virtually. Um, and, uh, and then last year came back to a live audience and have returned to a live audience again this year. That has become my nightly barometer as a storyteller for what audiences are seeking. Um, and it has had a profound impact on me as a playwright. I think it's one of the reasons I came back to playwriting this year and wanted to start developing stories of my own that we actually plan. Um, the biggest thing that I've learned from y'all, Mark, is at this time, the audience doesn't have a significant interest or investment in the fourth wall. Um, there is still an element of risk just in gathering together. There's a little bit of anxiety still mm -hmm. in gathering together in a room full of strangers when you don't know their choices. Um, and the challenge for us in an improvised performance is acknowledging that energy that the audience is bring, bringing into the room, the hope that we will inspire them to let go a little bit um, and receive something joyful. We're never more unguarded than when we're laughing together and finding a way to navigate that each evening and having the um, the benefit that improvisation provides of catering the storytelling very specifically to the people who have gathered in the room that night. That's so cool. That's so cool. I, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about like how you've seen it, how you've seen Yalmark grow over the years. I think I remember reading but it started in 2017. It was just you and two performers, and now you have rotating casts and all that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I still stand on stage and I'm kind of shocked by my surroundings. Uh, my uh, co-creator, Amber Nash, brought it to me several years ago. She has a longstanding relationship with Dad's Garage here in Atlanta. 
and had a notion of there's a bunch of different improv troops that are goofing on Hallmark movies um, and there's a lot of material there and that's my day job I write Hallmark movies and I was intrigued by the idea of what if we were really approaching this from the uh, kind of the assignment for the cast every night is try to get it right and the the narrator who I play on stage is like Charlie Brown with the football. He is absolutely convinced every single night that tonight we will make Christmas magic. And the uh, and the improvisers are coming in from a uh, character perspective of knowing absolutely nothing about Hallmark Christmas movies. And so I'm trying to guide them along in that process. Um, and the, so when we started, it was just the three of us, no costumes, very limited props doing a 20 minute late night show, uh, after the main stage show at dad's garage in the holidays and fast forward six years later, and we're doing a co-production with horizon theater on their main stage, um, doing two hour long form improvised stories every night. That makes me think, I, I saw, when I was in Seattle last Christmas, uh, Book It Rep did Austin Unbound, which was improvised Jane Austen. And so that kind of reminded me of, of this work. So I'm curious, like with the Jane Austen one, there were clear tent poles. It was like, okay, there needs to be a ball because it's Jane Austen and we want to send these <laughs> people to a ball. So I'm I really want to see Lauren Gunderson narrate a performance of that one night. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. We got to ask. Um, but I'm curious if there are certain aspects of a Hallmark movie that you mm -hmm. know you want to make sure an audience gets night in and night out. Yeah, the the thing I tell uh, when we do a warm up every night because we have a rotating cast and we have a guest star come in every night who's a performer in the Atlanta theater community um, who has not rehearsed with us, who is coming in totally cold. And so when we do the group check in every night, the two things that I tell them to aim for are if by the end of the story, they're not rooting for the couple, we haven't done our job. Um, and if people leave feeling worse than when they arrived, we haven't done our job. Um, there's, you know, Hallmark uh, as a brand. I mean, we're talking about a TV network that started out of a greeting card company, and there's a lot of crossover in those priorities. Um, it's um, it's focusing on moments of connection, moments of appreciation. Um, and the comedy comes not from us um, aggressively failing to do that, um, but in the humanity of the performers. Um, the, uh, the gut reaction you'll have to a moment, rather than leading with this priority of conne connection and kindness. Um, the reason people repeat traditions is because we're trying to recapture a feeling of something that felt really great once and there is there's a lot to be mined from that in the positive and then there's a lot that holds us back um that sometimes that thing 
that made you feel amazing once was very circumstantial. And trying to recreate that feeling without acknowledging that the world changes, the people change. Um, that's one of the things that I love about doing something that's improvised. It's so responsive. Um, it's the reason people go to Christmas Carol every year. It's the reason people go to Black Nativity every year um, or Elf or Santa Land Diaries. They're hoping to recapture a feeling. And with this, we have something that can evolve alongside them. I'm I'm curious, uh, Tover, how Hallmark movies became your day job. Um, I, so am uh, I. Initially, because <laughs> I, I just want to I just want to just orient orient folks. Some of your titles include Roman Love, My Summer Prince, and then I believe these are th three of them are Christmas Hallmark movies: The Gift mm -hmm. to Remember and Gift to Remember Two, Cherished Memories, and then Broadcasting Christmas. So, tell me, how did you how did the author of such plays as Perfect Arrangement and Angry Fags become the Hallmark King. The, the most <laughs> commonly asked question is, is how did I go from Steppenwolf Garage to Angry Fags to Hallmark Christmas in the span of a year? Um, we, uh, after Perfect Arrangement premiered uh, in New York with Primary Stages, I signed with a manager and started exploring moving into television. They brought me out to LA for what they called look-sees. And I... Uh, naively misunderstood, I thought I was looking at them. Um, I thought that this was an opportunity for me to ask them questions. And, um, and some people responded well to that and others didn't. And one of the networks that I asked to have a conversation with was the Hallmark Channel. My mother and her sisters really love it. Um, and anytime I go and visit mama at the holidays, I know what will be playing in the background. And, um, so you can imagine her pride and joy now. And I wanted the opportunity to ask someone in charge of storytelling there, why they told the stories they did the way that they did and, um, and what lessons they had learned from that. And it ended up being a really beautiful and productive and challenging conversation. Not everything uh, that I was bringing into the room was a positive. Um, mm. This was all in 2016, and um, and their storytelling had a much more limited scope at the time in mm. terms of whose stories were being told. Mm. And I was curious as to why that was. And to my delight and surprise, they were fully willing to engage in that conversation and approached a few weeks later with My Summer Prince, needed a rewrite and um and so it became kind of you know be the change you wish to see and i launched my hallmark writing career that's amazing yeah that's amazing that's fascinating it, it made me curious and it, part of the the yallmark show is you're on stage as an area but you're giving like network notes i think as i saw them called so i'm yep. curious what network notes you may have gotten in the day job aspect of the career that have made their way into the show? Okay, JR, the best thing about that is right now, I am actively in rewrites for my Christmas movie for next year. So I'm getting network notes in the afternoon and driving to the theater and repeating them a few hours later for an audience. Um, the... It's a lot of what you would anticipate um, uh, in terms of we are 
there's a lot of the outside world that does not invade in the world of a made-for-TV Christmas movie. Um, and that is one of the things people are seeking. Um, the big joke is COVID never really happened um, in made-for-TV holiday movies. Um, we have a lot of things that we've learned from it that are just incorporated in, um, but it is only ever passively referred to. And um, and even I find that refreshing. And um, so you're not going to see anybody masked in a... Hallmark Christmas movie, but you may see hand sanitizer come into play. They just won't talk about it. Um, and then because of the work that they do with the ASPCA and with the Humane Society, we are very conscious of making sure an animal is never at threat. Um, and uh, so there are leash laws in Hallmark movies that are, are pretty strident. Um, and if that dog's not in a fenced area, then that dog needs to be on a leash. So it's just things like that, um, that you might not catch on the first pass when you're telling a story, but they're considering, they are always considering what is the messaging. Did they, and those, the, does, does the leash odd notes make it into the show in some playful way? Because that, that's something that as a, as a lay person who hasn't really watched many of these movies would, I would not, I would not know that that's 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 new information to me <laughs> and that's where i can ring a bell and explain to the audience yes the lead oh. uh, the two leads will absolutely run into each other physically for their first meeting maybe somebody drops papers and um <laughs> and that there will be a single chaste kiss at the end of the story and it will absolutely snow no matter where it, the story takes place <laughs> even if they're indoors it will still start to snow when they have a single chaste kiss that's amazing um i would love to know um some of the best and the worst audience suggestions that you've gotten for this and how you how you run with them one of the interesting things about the marriage of Dad's Garage, um, which is almost entirely unscripted content, and Horizon Theater, where they're doing their first improv show, is the marriage of those audiences. So you have a very, very savvy improv comedy audience joining forces with a very traditional theater audience who um, in many cases are seeing improv live on stage for the first time. Um, so the audience suggestions tend to reflect that. And we have, <laughs> um, everybody thinks they're clever when they say stripper. Everybody thinks they're clever when they say, you know, her job is she has an OnlyFans. Um, you are not clever. You are not the first person to think of this. I try to have respect for the audience, but every once in a while, I just need to let you know you're not as funny as you think you are. Leave it to the <laughs> professionals. Um, the But the challenge for us and the delight for us is finding a way to get the audience to settle in and let them know we do not expect them to be anything other than themselves. Um, we start the show by soliciting um, questions from the audience because we are holiday professionals and um, and giving them the opportunity to ask us for advice on how to make their holidays better. And what I'm doing in that 
is collecting stories from the audience, asking questions of the audience, and gathering everything I need for the mad libs of that night's performance without specifically making a game out of it. And so somebody tells an amazing story about growing up in Milwaukee. And then later when I need a setting, I've got Milwaukee ready to go. And um, and so we try to let things happen organically so that people just settle in and and know that they're acknowledged and know that they're seen. And this year in particular, the fervent need for that has really revealed itself. Um, in ways that I don't think I fully respected or had given proper thought to when we started last week. Hmm. You mentioned that mixture of audiences. Uh, I'm curious, like, how uh, I'm thinking of the, the way I want to say this. Uh, like, I'm curious how the preconceived notions, whatever they may be, mm -hmm. about Hallmark movies, about the genre how that plays with audiences with this show. One of the interesting things about my day job is I, I feel like in, in many ways I've spent uh, the last seven years justifying it. Um, uh, not to get too real about it, but um, <laughs> people consider the work that I write for the stage my legitimate work and the stuff I write for TV um, to be what pays the bills and allows me to do what I would rather be doing full-time. Um, a Hallmark Christmas movie on first airing usually has around 5 million viewers. That is more people uh, than have ever seen every single thing I have ever written as a playwright. Um, and I look at that and all I see is opportunity. Mm. And I recognize that with the constraints of network television um, and writing something in a very specific genre, there are there's bumper lanes set up um, to keep me within a specific range of how I can tell a story that's important to me. But I still approach it with the same level of importance as I do when I'm creating something for the stage on my own. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I am asking for the gift of someone's time. They are being willing to offer that up and I have to be respectful of that. Um, and the interesting thing about Yolmark as narrator, because I'm communicating directly with the audience, is I feel like by the end of the show, the people who came in loving made-for-TV Christmas movies have a confirmation of the pieces of that that are quite wonderful. And the people that came in hating made-for-TV Christmas movies understand that I am not deluded about the genre that I'm writing in, but these stories have value. Right. Love that. I, I wanted to use, you mentioned also earlier that uh, you you introduce yourself as a holiday professional, which I think is, <laughs> uh, is, is a, <laughs> and it made me think about uh, another holiday show that you were part of for a long time, which was uh, Santa Land Diaries. Uh, you played the role of Crumpet, who of course is a kind of a holiday professional. Pretty, yes, he pretty, is. Pretty, Unwillingly pretty so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about, about that experience and if that informed any of your any of your sensibility? Or it seemed to match your sensibility, I, guess, I would imagine, right? 
in the Horizon Theater version of it, I'm back on the same stage where I did Santa Land Diaries with Yalmar. Okay. Um, in the Horizon Theater version, they had two sidekick characters um, who were supporting the Crumpet character in David Sedaris's Santa Land. And um, and they're entirely silent. David's uh, the character of David or Crumpet provides the voices for them as he continues narrating the tale. And um, so I started as one of the uh, um, rude mechanicals that <laughs> is making Santa Land happen for him. Um, and Harold Lieber um, played the role in Atlanta for 19 years. Um, and uh, and then I took over for him when he went into a uh, uh, a retirement that allows him to spend the holidays with his family for the first time. Nice, um, nice. And it was such a similar impulse. I think that's one of the reasons Horizon was such an obvious choice for what we're doing here is Horizon was providing the the slightly snarkier holiday programming um uh with doing a David Sedaris show for 20 plus years and oh. then having Yolmark it still scratches that itch that I find so compelling that people want to see something a little more sly something that has a little bit of an edge to it but ultimately my belief about these audiences both with what I learned from Santa Land because of course it's David Sedaris the writing is gorgeous and there's real moments of discovery and reflection and authenticity in the Santa Land diaries mm -hmm. um and um and taking the lessons learned from audiences on that and applying it to Yolmark that even the people that are like eh, eh, screw this um are just looking for a moment of feeling acknowledged and feeling okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the year in review nature of holiday programming, um, as we reflect upon all of the choices and the things that we made happen and the things that happened to us, um, and we come in for end-of-year programming in regional theaters, it's a reflection of that feeling in the community. And finding a way to entertain while honoring and respecting that Horizon, for example, has a significant subscriber base represented in the Atlanta Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And the experience of being an American Jew, particularly since October, mm -hmm. means that you have to exercise additional care that idea of i will leave you better than we found you mm -hmm. um there is a tremendous responsibility in that it's just one of the ways that we provide care is providing the release of laughter and the release yeah. of shared laughter in a community of audience members that's great um i wanted to just ask about uh, you know, apart from knowing that your your mom will be watching Hall Hallmark movies when you when you visit, um, <laughs> what are what are some Topher Payne uh, holiday traditions? Uh, this could include, you know, both entertainment you consume, but maybe also other things you consume or or do as part of your holiday tradition. 
Oh my to... goodness. Do you realize no one has ever asked me that question in an interview? Well... Um, <laughs> nobody cares what I do, Rob. <laughs> well, we do. Um, we can. my uh my husband Charlie, um, who is also currently writing his first made-for-TV Christmas movie. So this is really about to become the family business. Um, (laughs) And when I'm doing a Christmas show, um, I don't do a lot of decorating around the house. um, And we do a small Christmas tree much closer to the holiday so that Mm -hmm. when I come home, I don't still feel like I'm on stage. Um, (laughs) And, um, but big Christmas breakfast, is our is our thing um at this stage in the life of our family um it's just the two of us and so we don't have uh the um selfish needs of children to consider and so we sleep late we make pancakes and then we watch movie screeners provided for the wga awards (laughs) (laughs) it's that time of year yes it's the holidays uh, for oh people, yes is yes it's the holiday time. season but it's also <laughs> awards season <laughs> and i think that may be our primary holiday <laughs> that's great that's great um i i was going to mention um you know one of my one of my favorite holiday uh movies has become one of our families is the, the black adder christmas special i don't know if you, ever, if you know that uh I'm not familiar. What do you love? Well, so about? Black Adder is Black Adder is the Rowan Atkinson series where he it's different piece parts of English history, but very cynical take on and very anachronistic take on it. And that one um is uh it's a reverse, it's a reverse story in which uh Black Adder, a Cratchit type character, uh is visited um by ghosts who show him all the ways he was too nice and trampled on, and he should have been more ruthless. <laughs> more of a a bastard and it's really funny i mean of course i don't believe any of that but i just you know i i i'm a sucker for the the actual christmas carol story but i just love the subversion of it so i don't know jr i i I didn't prepare you for for telling us your favorite holiday tradition but i figure since we're all here why don't you why don't you tell us what do you what's your favorite Uh, I mean, the holidays are just the one time a year I get to head down to Indianapolis and see my family. So yeah, yeah. So, uh, my my mother and I have started a sort of new tradition of going to the Chris Kendall Market in Chicago. Uh, oh, nice. We decided to get our Christmas gifts there this year, so maybe that'll become our new tradition. We're playing around with traditions. Yeah, I love that. And that's <laughs> that is awesome. The, that's the whole thing. My favorite traditions are the new ones exactly yeah yeah i do remember distinctly when i was when i left my family's home i like going back but i created my own traditions was a big like a big deal for me like wow i can actually make my own playlist and make my 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 own eggnog or whatever um i know you have an interesting busy year coming up um not just the christmas movies you're working on but uh i see that uh well for instance you're not involved in this but triangle productions in portland is doing perfect arrangement in April. I saw that. But, but closer to home, you're working on it's a new play, I believe, at George Ensemble Theater in April. Is that right? Queen of the Falls? Queen of the Falls premiering in tell April. Us, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, man. Plug. I am so excited about this show. It is the uh, story of Annie Edson Taylor, the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel and survive. Um, she did it on her 63rd birthday. 
Uh, <laughs> she was a retired school teacher who had led a she the woman had hustle and um she had lived all over the united states and in mexico city she ran a dance school briefly she was a civil war widow who was denied a pension because they never found her husband's body and they're pretty sure he deserted and started a new life for himself and finding herself in dire financial straits um in the early 1900s her solution was she would go over Niagara Falls in a barrel and then tour the vaudeville circuit, um, telling the story of it and selling picture postcards of her going over the falls for a penny. Um, and then her manager absconded with the barrel, and she was never able to do her vaudeville show. And so we are telling the life of Annie Edson Taylor as the vaudeville show she never got to do. And so it's a, a full vaudeville bill with magic acts and dancing girls and um, and each one is a chapter of her life story. And it's it's uh, it's my favorite space to occupy as a playwright, uh, taking a contemporary lens and then really leaning in on old techniques of storytelling. And um, so I'm having a blast with it. Yeah, I was going to ask is when you described the premise, I thought, well, that that sounds like a TV movie. But then you tell me you're going to do it in a theatrical format. That's why it's a play, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the TV movie would would include some of that maybe, but it would be all about the logistics of getting over the falls. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to tell the story um, as she would have imagined it. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, and because I started as a technician before I was a playwright, um, my plays tend to acknowledge the collaboration of the design team from its inception and mm. one of the challenges for the design team on this one is you can't do anything annie could not imagine happening and right, okay. and so even if we're not using gas lamps and risking the lives of our audience um there's still like yes we can do projection in this but it has to be shadow projection it has to be um, glass images that are are being projected forward. We can't use resources that Annie's imagination could not have conceived. Hmm. And keeping that um, and letting everybody nerd out on the research of that one of we're still doing very fantastical elements in this, but what is the 1901 version um, when the magic tended to show the strings a little bit more and um and inviting the audience in to what annie would have pictured for herself that sounds amazing i wish well maybe we'll get a chance to see it it's, it's months away it's months away and let's hope it's not the only production there ever is of it good, and good, perhaps good. we will come to you I, maybe so maybe so <laughs> Topher, it has been such a pleasure uh, talking to you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Folks, if you're in the Atlanta area, go see Y'all Mark. I realize it's a, it's at the Horizon Theater, and it's not at Dad's Garage. Is that right? It's at Dad's right. Garage Horizon Theater. Co-produced so, with Dad's Garage at Horizon. So the, the the background behind me is the Dad's Garage Theater, where you will not be seeing Y'all Mark. You'll be seeing it at the Horizon. But Well, uh, then good that they get to see it, Rob. Way to be considerate. Right? <laughs> <laughs> trying to spread the love around. <laughs> Topher, if we, don't, if we don't talk again, happy holidays to you. And, and and your husband and, and your family and, and all that all the that you come in contact with. 
Thank you we'll so much. You. Happy holidays, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Topher. Um, so we have now uh, an interview that Calendra Smith did with Linda Armstrong, uh, who's one of the, I think, the longest standing Black critics, theater critics, uh, who working in our, in our trade. So I've never met Linda, but it was great to hear Calendra talk to her about her work covering not just Black theater, but theater in general. Uh, she writes for the New York Amsterdam News and Harlem News, and here's that interview. Uh, we will sit back and watch. Enjoy, and, and you know, if you, happy holidays to you all. Today, I am thrilled that we get to speak with one of my favorite theater critics, Linda Armstrong, who has been writing theater criticism for outlets such as the New Amsterdam News for more than 30 years. Linda, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I just want to jump in with you because you have such a wealth of experience and knowledge. I just want to start by asking you, how did you first get into theater criticism and what was your theater experience growing up? How did you get exposed to theater? Well, when I was um, a child, my parents would take me to plays and um, I just really loved it. You know, it was it was really an escape and it was just sitting there and, and you know, you seeing this beautiful story unfold in front of you. And um, I just thought it was it was magical. You know, it was just this incredible experience. And I just really, really loved it. And it wasn't until I was um, at Hunter. And I was an English creative writing major and I was a psychology minor. And one year I decided to take a communications class and it was reporting one. And when I took that class and I went out and I was interviewing people because um, I actually went to Central Park and I interviewed the handsome cab drivers. And I asked them, you know, what was it like being a handsome cab driver? How is it, you know? And they were like, oh, it's great. The horses think they've died and gone to horse heaven. I mean, it's really wonderful. And then I went to the five-star hotel across the street and I asked the people working there, how is it being right here at Central Park? They're like, oh, it's disgusting. The horses stink, the men beat them. I'm like, what? So I wrote my article and my professor was also the head of the communications department. And he said, Linda, I love it. I love it. And I told him I loved doing it. It was so much fun. And I said, you know, how would I do this, you know, as a, another major? I mean, I'm already a major. And he was like, Linda, do a double major and a psychology minor. And I was like, okay. So I did the double major. And um, he said to me, he was like, you know, if you really want to be a journalist, you have to find an outlet to write for and you have to have clips. So I said, all right. So I went to Amsterdam News, New York Amsterdam News. And at that time, you could just walk in and go to see the publisher, Mr. Tatum. I went to his office and I introduced myself. Um, when I was in college, my maiden name is Fuller. And I said, you know, my name is Linda Fuller and I'm a, a, a journalism major at Hunter. And I wanted to know, can I, you know, write for Amsterdam News so that I could start to get clips? So he was like, well, Linda, what are you interested in? So I said, well, theater. So he was like, okay, you know, Amsterdam is a walk-up, right? So I, he was on the second floor. He was like, Linda, go upstairs to the fourth floor and tell Mr. Um, Tapley, Mel Tapley, the A&E editor, I said, put you to work. I said, okay, great. So I go upstairs and Mr. Tapley was like, okay, so what do you want to do? I was like, theater. So he started sending me to church basement plays. I mean, literally plays in church basements, right? 
And I was like, okay, cool, you know. And I'm I'm covering all this stuff and I'm doing the Black Theater and going to New Federal Theater and, and you know, National Black Theater and Billy Holiday Theater and all of that. And I said to him one day, one day I said, Mr. Tapley, why don't we cover Broadway? And he was like, Linda, ain't no Black people going to Broadway. I said, well, maybe if there was something that they heard about that was good, they would go. So he was like, give it a shot. And that was it. Once he said that, I started doing Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. And um, I just absolutely, theater is really a passion for me because I think that theater, I truly believe it's a gift from God because I believe that when it is done well, it can take you out of whatever is going on in your life and let you buy into the story on that stage. And it can educate, it can inspire. Theater is just beautiful. It really shows our humanity you know some of the storylines and plays and and i have always made it my business to cover every kind of theater but particularly black theater and black people in broadway shows and off broadway shows and off off broadway shows and you know be that person to see somebody in something and then reach out to the press person and say can i do an interview with this person because i want our people to be spotlighted every time that they're doing something because they're magnificent they are so versatile. They they have such talent. And I want to make sure that the world knows that my people are talented because they are. So, you know, being a critic is something that I've been doing now. This is 38 years. Next year, will be 39. <laughs> um, and it's just something that I absolutely love. I, I love to shine the light on what my people are doing. Um, you know, whether you're an actor, a playwright, a director, like you have, you know, somebody amazing like a kenny leon you know you have a woody king jr founder of new federal theater you have a carl clay founder of black spectrum theater you know you have for a long time marjorie moon at the billy holiday theater you know so many magnificent um theatrical groups that are out there and they're doing the work and i always want to make sure that people know that they're doing the work and then you have you know these amazing black playwrights that are on broadway your lynn nottages you know and your dominique marisols and, and i mean you have so many people that are doing broadway doing off broadway off off broadway and i just feel like it's my mission in life to make sure that i do whatever i can to shine a light on what they're doing and just theater in general too you know like i said i'll do broadway i'll do off broadway off off broadway whatever it is i just love it i absolutely love it there's so many questions I want to get into based on what you've just said. So I want to first start with, you grew up in New York, yes? Yes, born and, and raised. Do you remember what one of the first shows your parents took you to was when they first started taking you to theater? They took me to Mornings at 7. Mornings now, if you at remember, 7, tell me about that. Oh, I mean, this was, oh my God, <laughs> this was a long time ago. But I remember it was a comedy. And I remember, um, you know, just sitting there and as a kid, I didn't always get the joke so quickly, you know, um, but I did get some, I enjoyed it. And, and then my mom used to take me to um, Alvin Ailey and things along that line. So, you know, there was just something so poised and so beautiful that I saw, you know, as a child um, seeing a uh, going to theater. And then as a teenager, um, my boyfriend, who later became my husband, um, he used to take me on dates. And our dates would be, he would rent a stretch limo. He would take me to a Broadway show and take me to a five-star restaurant, right? Yeah, I mean, that's so he was. Um, 
And so, you know, he really also exposed me to a lot of wonderful shows. I remember one of our first big Broadway shows that we went to was 42nd Street. And I remember us just being there, you know, in the theater and he had rented a, a limousine. And, you know, after that, we went to this beautiful restaurant and, you know, it was just really nice. I remember we went to see Oklahoma and after the show, we actually, he had had a limo for that as well. And after that, we went to Rockefeller Center and we were singing the songs from Oklahoma to each other, <laughs> which was really funny because we didn't know anybody was there. And we turned around and this family was like, you know, and we were like, oh my God, I'm sorry, we didn't know people were there. They were like, oh, we were like, get the level, you know. Um, so my husband, um, Chris, he really, he also continued what my parents had started. You know, um, he loved musicals. We went to a lot of a lot of shows, um, and just you know, when I was in college, I just when I realized that I wanted to be a theater critic, I just you know started going to plays and then. When I started going to the Broadway shows, though, that actually one day led me to meeting a man named Peter Felicia, who at the time was president of Drama Desk. And Peter was like, hey, Linda, you know, you want to you want to be a member of Drama Desk? I'm like, what is that? So he was he explained what they do. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So um, he was like, OK, so I'm giving you this email, send in your clips and, you know, we'll let you know. Well, not only did Peter have me become a member of Drama Desk, put me on the board of directors. Right. So I did that for a while, being on the board of directors, always been a member of Drama Desk. Um, this was, I can't tell you how many years ago. So now as with Drama Desk, I'm not only on the board of directors and a member, I'm also on the nominating committee, which was a huge honor um, that I got for the season. And I'm just so appreciative of that. Um, I'm also a board member for Adelco, which um, recognizes excellence in black theater. And I'm on the nominating committee for Adelco which I'm incredibly proud of. Um, on November 20th, we had our 51st, 51st anniversary Adelco Awards. And it was absolutely incredible. Um, I actually recently went on Jean Purnell's show and it just aired this morning, <laughs> um, my interview with her about the Adelcos. It was, it was phenomenal to just have all of that black theater love in the room and all of these people, you know, we had the cast of Flex from Lincoln Center and all these people there, everybody, you know, with their different companies sitting at their table. And then we honored Sonia Sanchez and Stephen McKinley Henderson, who is one of my personal favorites. I mean, so many people, Ted Lange, I mean, so many people, Elaine Graham, it was just Roscoe Orman. It was so many people in that room and the love and the appreciation and just, seeing people go up and just saying, it means so much to be honored by my own. And I know what that feels like because in 2015, the Adelcos gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. At that point, I had been a theater critic for 30 years. So it was just like, when you're in that room with that much talent, that much love, that much appreciation, and every Adelco starts with a prayer. So we invite the ancestors to come in. We are happy to have them there and acknowledge that we are standing on shoulders, you know? It's, it's just like, it's so beautiful. And that's what it is about theater and, and black theater and just, you know, it doesn't have to be a black theater company. It could be black people in a show, you know, Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. It's just amazing. And don't get me wrong, Calandra, I do go to shows that don't have black people too. I mean, I'll go to anything, 
but I always make sure that I am there trying my best to support our people and shine a light on them because they need that and they deserve it, you know? So that's, that's what's really important to me. Absolutely. I want to ask something you mentioned also about how you walked into the new Amsterdam news and basically said, hi, I'm Linda. Sweetie, wait, wait, wait. It's not New Amsterdam News. It's New York Amsterdam News. The New York Amsterdam News. Right. Excuse me. <laughs> okay. um, mm. You walked into the New York Amsterdam News and said, hi, I'm Linda Fuller, and I, you know, want to write. Um, that's a kind of unheard of thing for this new generation of critics. Mm -hmm. um, and over the years, we've seen all media go through cuts um, where the arts are usually the first to go. We've mm -hmm. seen people have to fight and scrape to be able to, you know, hold on to assignments. How have you been able to hold on and justify your freelance work for the Amsterdam News over the last almost 40 years? Tell me what that process of self-advocacy has looked like. I mean, Amsterdam News is my home. I started here. Um, Mr. Tatum gave me a chance and he loved my work and he praised me all the time and he believed in me. Um, as a theater critic, I started to hone my craft of writing and you know, I developed the following. So there are people that literally will read my reviews and decide if they're gonna buy a ticket to a show. You know, and I think that because um, people know that I look at shows from my perspective which in a lot of times i think that the readers have a similar perspective to me and so they will agree with what i'm saying they'll you know if i say something they appreciate it and i don't normally say things to be vicious that's not what i think a theater critic's supposed to do i'll say things to let you know the beauty of what i just saw and why you need to go see it and why you need to support our people if I, and I'm not saying that I don't see things that I write a negative review because I do write negative reviews, but if I write a negative review, there's gotta really be something about that show that just did not rub me the right way, you know? And so I think that my longevity is just the fact that the, the Amsterdam news is my home. Um, Mr. Tatum gave me that home. Eleanor, his daughter, who is the publisher and a beautiful person, we go back all those years. She was there when I started, you know? So I think that Eleanor also has shown that, you know, she believes in me, she has faith in me. And I so appreciate the fact that I know that I am welcome at Amsterdam News. I know that this is my newspaper home. I write for other papers and other outlets as well, but this is my home. This is where I started. And I so appreciate that this is, you know, like if you go to, um, Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library, right? They actually have every review I have ever written that appeared in the Amsterdam News from Linda Fuller to Linda Fuller Armstrong to Linda Armstrong. <laughs> they have everything. And, you know, they had reached out to me. And when the gentleman that runs the library told me that, I said, are you serious? <laughs> oh my God, oh my gosh, you know? So, I mean, this is my paper that, like I said, gave me my start and allows me to continue and that I have built up all these people that, you know, love what I write, appreciate that I'm there. And all I can do is be grateful for that. 
you know, and thank God for Mr. Mr. Tatum. Thank God for Eleanor and thank God for my, my editor, who is Kristen Famo Roy, a beautiful, beautiful young woman who is a, just a, a blessing to work with. Um, and I just appreciate how much people appreciate me and that this is my home. And, you know, like I said, I, I write for other publications too, but Amsterdam was my first. And it's something that I want to always write for. So then I also am curious to know, you know, we, I think one of the things that makes your experience and your outlet special is that the New York Amsterdam News is an African-American newspaper. Um, at one point in this country, the black press, I mean, there were thousands of black newspapers, you know, now we don't have those same numbers, but the New York Amsterdam News has persisted. I wonder, what does it mean to you to write about theater from an African-American lens? How is your viewpoint, your experience, your approach different? You talk about your following and their, your readership and how they may have a similar perspective. Talk about that a bit. Well, first of all, um, when I go to see a show, I go in with a completely open mind, okay? I sit down and from the time that the show starts, from the time that I sit down, if if they let you see the set, I'll start writing notes in my pad about the set. Um, and then from the beginning of the show to the end, I'm writing notes. I'm writing notes on the performances. I'm writing notes on the storyline. I'm writing notes on how I feel at a given moment in the show. Um, so that when I am finished with that show, sometimes if a show really grabs me, I can actually write a review going home on the train because the show is that much inside me that I just have to get the words out. Um, when I look at things, when I look at stories like Pearly Victorious, um, which is fantastic. Um, when I look at black shows, I look at them because as a black person, I know the, the history and I know the messages and I and I am familiar with the characters that are presented in these shows. Sometimes it reminds you of a relative, sometimes it reminds you of a friend, but you understand it. But I can go to a show and I will see it one way and another critic who is not black will see it another way. And I'll sit there and I'll say, what did you see? Because I didn't see that, you know? And the thing is, if people don't come to it from our background, they are going to look at it in a way where you're sitting there and saying, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, I mean, and that's just how it is. You know, when I see things, when I write my reviews, I try to let people know what I saw in it that I think was fantastic. And I am seeing it because it is my history. It is my people, especially if it's a, a black focused play, you know, and it's written by a black person and starring black people and you know directed by a black person we bring our own elements to any show and if you are not black sometimes you're not going to get the little jokes you're not going to get you know some of the um the references but when you are black and you sit there you feel like you're in church because you understand everything that they're talking about and you get all the little jokes and all the little cracks so you go in there and you look at things in a certain way, just like you could see a show, like there was a show that I saw um, years ago. It's called The Scottsboro Boys. That was on Broadway, it's a musical. That show to me was highly offensive, 
Okay. And I wrote a negative review about it. And um, there were people in the audience, um, white people in the audience, and they were laughing at all the racist comments and jokes. And I sat in that audience and I did not get up. I have never in 38 years left the show before it was over. Because no matter what, I want to give you a chance to redeem yourself. So I'm not going to leave. Like some people would say, oh, no, I, I couldn't take it anymore. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to force myself to stay because I want to see, do you do something where I could look and say, oh, okay. But if you don't, then when it's time for me to write, I'm just going to let you have it. I'm just going to say everything that was wrong with it. You know, how offended I was by it. And the thing is, what you, what another person who's not black looks at that show and says, because I was actually on a radio show talking about it afterwards. And um, it was uh, Felipe Luciano did a, a radio show and he had me come on and he had, I don't remember the young lady's name, but it was a white uh, female critic came on and he asked her, oh, what did you think of the Scottsboro Boys? And she was like, oh, I thought it was funny. Da, 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 da. And she went on and she was saying whatever. And he was like, Linda, what did you think? And I said, I thought it was disgusting. I thought it was disrespectful. I thought it was racist. I could not believe when they had the, the boy dancing on his way to the gas chamber. That's funny. No, that was despicable. Okay. And I was so upset about that show. And, you know, when everything was over with and the interview was over, Felipe, you know, he and I were just um, on the phone and he was like, Linda, I knew you would come through. <laughs> and I was like, listen, <laughs> no, I could not. No, that show, no you know and you know i have to call it as i see it if if you're talking about something and it's creative license or whatever fine but when you do something where you are blatantly disrespectful and you are blatantly racist i'm going to call you out for that you know but then on the other hand when i see a show like thoughts of a colored man that was on broadway that show was magnificent i had never seen anything like it that gave black men a voice like that you know, it was comparable in some ways to For Color Girls, you know? And when I saw that show, I just thought it was so magnificent that even though it didn't get to last a long time due to COVID and people getting sick, when I did one of my um, one of my panels at Broadway Con, I made it on Thoughts of a Colored Man. And I had the play right there and I had some of the actors there because I wanted everybody to know this show existed. This was part of history and it was amazing. It was phenomenal. And they need to get their flowers now so that they know we saw you. You were fantastic. That was a story that nobody was telling. Thank you for doing it. And so I, I just try to, you know, make sure that I do everything I can to appreciate our people as, as often as I can. Well, speaking of Broadway Con, I've done Broadway Con twice. I know you do Broadway Con every year. Um, talk to me about your Broadway con panels. Do you have a topic already selected for next year and how can people uh, get access to that? Well, I actually have it selected. I don't know if they're going to okay me, but I've never had them turn me down. <laughs> but um, what I wanted to do, I wanted to do um, a panel on Pearly Victorious uh, because I know that it's going to be over in February. And I really wanted to do a panel with Leslie and Kara um, and Kenny to just, you know, have that record that the show existed. Um, because to me, the, the play is so amazing. And the fact that it's Ozzie Davis and, you know, over 60 years since it was on Broadway, I mean, 
there's so much history there and I want to make sure that that's highlighted. And then um, I also wanted to do a panel on Jaja's African hair braiding because I have never, ever seen a Broadway show on that topic. And actually being in that theater convicted me because I was one of those people getting off the train at Harlem and the lady saying, hair braiding miss, hair braiding miss. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. And I never thought about the backstory to these ladies. And that show made me feel guilty. I'm sitting in the theater crying, not just because it was extremely moving. It was funny, but in the end, it was so serious and it was so moving. And I'm sitting there, my daughter and I are sitting there crying. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to her, oh my God, I'm guilty. I am guilty. I just looked at them as a nuisance. I never thought about these people having backstories and having children to take care of and you know, bills to pay and all of that. And so that show convicted me. And I was like, I want this playwright. I want this director. And it's, you know, a woman playwright, a woman director. And I want two of these cast members to come on and tell people what it was like to do a, a play like this and to give people that spotlight on something that nobody has ever talked about on Broadway, not to my knowledge, in the 38 years I've been doing this. I've never seen a play like that. And it was one of those plays where it also brought our people out to the theater. Oh my God, looking around that theater, I was smiling from ear to ear. I never saw so many black women with long braids in my life. It was beautiful. I was like, oh my God, my sisters are out here and they are showing it, man. And you just see everybody standing in front of the theater. They're taking their selfies and all of that. I was like, oh my God, this is beautiful. When plays do that, it's wonderful. I love when you know you have our people doing these non-traditional casting and you had you know like a raisin in the sun and, and all of that stuff and and you had um oh my god um oh shoot what is the play oh my god um the play where um it was oh my god head on a hot tin roof that play when they did it with a black cast girl 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 seeing our people in that theater it was beautiful and it brought them out there because it was our people up there doing this play that has never been done by a black cast and they did it they did it beautifully you know and so when i go to things like that it was funny because i also went you know when they did a non-traditional casting for a streetcar named desire and they had blair underwood playing stan stanley and i remember before they even started rehearsals they had a big press meet and greet and I was the last journalist to talk to Blair. And, um, you know, I was saying to him, I said, oh, this is going to be amazing. You know, you're going to play this role. And, and he was saying how he was a little nervous, you know, because he felt that people were going to compare him to Marlon Brando and all of that. And I said, Blair, just be who you are. Just be who you are. Don't worry about Marlon Brando. You're not Marlon Brando. Don't worry about him, you know. Just be Blair Underwood and just do the role how you're going to do it. And when... The press night came and I went to see it. Oh my God, girl. I went backstage and I had a coworker with me. This was a job I had many years ago. Had the coworker with me, went backstage and Blair came down, right? And he's like, oh, hey, Linda. And I'm introducing my coworker. And then um, the lady, I can't recall the lady's name who directed it, but it was a, a white lady. And she came down and Blair was like, oh, this is Linda Armstrong, Amsterdam News. And she was like, oh, so nice to meet you. And she said, Linda, can I ask you a question? And I was like, sure. 
And so we're on the stairs looking up, right? So I'm not paying attention to anybody below. I'm just looking at her, talking to Blair. And she said, Linda, let me ask you, during the, the rape scene, why were people in the theater laughing? They do that at every show, and I don't understand why. And I looked at her and I said, the people who came to this show, the Black people that came, they came because of Blair. They're used to seeing Blair in like Tyler Perry, Perry movies and things like that, right? But they came here. They've never been to Broadway, probably. Probably never walked into a theater. But they came here for Blair. They saw something that made them uncomfortable. When you're uncomfortable, what do you do? You laugh. I said, so they're laughing because they're uncomfortable and they don't know what to do because they've never been in a theater before. And she looked at me and she said, wow. I never thought of that. I never looked at it from that. And I'm like, yeah, think about what you guys did in casting this black cast. You were bringing people to the theater that never came here before. So they don't know how to act. They don't know what to expect. And they were uncomfortable by that scene. And that's why they laughed. And when I turned around, girl, the entire cast was standing by the exit door and they were all looking up and listening. And I didn't even know they were there. I never heard them come out. And my friend from my job was standing down there with them. And when everything was over and we walked out, she was like, oh my God, girl. And I said, girl, stop. And she was like, and I said, no, 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 not really. I was just talking to the director, that's all. But I didn't know they were standing there. She was like, girl, I was so crazy. I was like, yeah, whatever. But, you know, so it's like when our people do things and they bring us to the theater and let us experience it, you're opening people's eyes. You're opening their hearts to a new experience. And when you go to theater, to me, I don't see how you can go there and ever be the same. Because you've been allowed to come into this beautiful world where you can be educated, inspired. You can be moved to tears, you know? And you feel your humanity inside. And you feel what's going on on that stage. And it gives you such a deep respect and regard for people involved with theater, from the actors to the directors, to the producers, to the tech people. And some of the de detailed and beautiful sets you see and the detailed and gorgeous costumes you see, that's a lot of work that people put into these shows, whether it's Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, the Black theaters. Everybody really puts their heart and soul into what they do because it's their passion and they want to move you and they want to touch your life. And so I love the fact that I get to do this and I get to do it and, and, you know, just continue to hone my craft as a journalist. Um, when I write, I tend to write the way I speak. And I guess the people that um, follow me like the way that I write and the, like the way that I speak and like the things that I look for in shows. And I appreciate them so much. And I tell you truthfully, as a theater critic, I don't normally know the impact that my reviews have um, unless people like a Woody King um, calls me and says, Linda, oh my God, girl, your review came out and the phone's been running off the hook. And I'm like, really? Okay, great. That's wonderful. Fantastic. But normally I don't hear anything about it, you know, so I'm really happy when people do say to me, oh, wow, you know, Linda, um, your review came out and thank you so much. We really appreciate it. When I went out to um, Black Spectrum Theater in Queens, Paul Clay 
the founder and, and who runs it, um, he actually showed me where he has taken past reviews that I've done of his shows and he's made them huge posters in the theater. And when I went in there, he was like, look there, there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, Paul, this is like great. Oh my God, thank you so much. You know, so I appreciate people acknowledging what I'm doing and also being able to use it to help them with their theaters and to get people to come out. Well, everybody listening right now can clearly hear your passion and your voice about what you do. And I will note for a moment for everyone that Jaja's African Hair Rating will be the play script in the winter issue of American Theater Magazine, which is due out in mid-January. So if you are a TCG member, you will get a chance to read the script of Jaja's African Hair Rating by Jocelyn Bio in the winter issue of American Theater Magazine. And if you are not a member, there is still time to become a member so you can get that print issue and read that script. Um, because as Linda said, it is a very moving play. Um, and I would like to ask you uh, just a couple more questions. One is, you know, you talked a lot about um, your relationships with various artists um, and producers and directors in the industry, and you really become ingrained in the theater community. When people are coming behind you, um, say there's that high school student or college student who has a desire to be a theater critic, they're entering a very different media landscape than the one that you entered. And I wonder any advice, tips you may have for them about pursuing this as a passion, as a career. Well, I think, you know, I think it's kind of like what my professor said to me, um, you know, you would have to get in touch with an outlet and let them know that you want to start being published um, so that you do have the clips to say that you're doing this. Um, I don't even know when it comes to a high school, maybe maybe the school newspaper is something where you could start to you know say to whoever's running the newspaper would you mind if i did like theater reviews um even if it's something that is you know like a, a youth oriented type of production um you know that you could start to write reviews and when you go into the theater pay attention to everything take notes on everything um you know because the whole thing is you want to capture that experience you want to capture what you're feeling in the moment whether it is reacting to somebody's acting, whether it is reacting to music, somebody's singing, whatever it is that moved you and touched you, take the note. Don't try to sit there and think, oh, I'll remember later. No, don't do that. Take the note and then you can look back at your notes and you can be moved again to the point that you are able to capture it and write it down. And I used to tell people when my, um, when my youngest daughter was in junior high school, she went to a performing arts junior high school and then a performing arts high school. And now she's a theater major in college. And I used to tell the kids in her performing arts junior high school, I used to say um, when I went in for careers day as, as a theater critic, I said to them, do you go to the movies? They'd be like, oh yeah. I like, so when you went to the movies, if you liked it, did you tell your friends about what you liked in the movie? And they were like, yeah. I said, right there, you were a critic. If you can see something and form in your mind what you want to say about it and then convey that to somebody, whether it's written or verbally, you're a critic. Do the same thing with theater. Just go, you know, know what you want to say, formulate it, put it together and give it to somebody so that this way you start to hone your craft. You start to hear your voice and find your voice as a critic. I write the way I speak. 
Um, I just am very straightforward with my critiquing of things. And if I love something, you're going to know I love it. From the time you read the headline, you're going to know I love it. And once you finish that first paragraph, you're going to know what I feel too. But I mean, I just believe in you say it. I say it how I speak. But if another person wants to do it a different way, that's up to them. But definitely just take those notes be detailed, be able to convey what you feel. If you felt passionate about it, be able to convey that passion through your words, your written words, because writing is an incredible outlet. It has been an outlet for me since I was in second grade. I've been writing prose since I was in second grade. And it's just something where it's so important to get out how you feel. And if your feeling can be expressed in a way where you can get other people to react, then that's wonderful because then you're helping somebody else to be able to be enlightened and to experience something new. So by all means, you know, if you have a high school um, newspaper, you know, ask about being able to cover theater or if you wanted to start off with movies and then go to theater, whatever is more comfortable for you. But, you know, just start writing, start getting your voice to develop inside you. And then, you know, you can reach out to these, but there are so many publications now. I mean, you know, you know, you have online magazines, you have physical magazines, reach out to people and tell them what it is that you want to do. Email them, you know, reach out and just, you know, call their office. If I'm doing this, who can I send um, a query to, to ask how I could start to write for you guys, if that's possible. If you guys have any kind of side thing going on. Some magazines might even have internships, you know? where you could try to, to get involved like that. I mean, I don't know for sure because I, you know, I don't deal with stuff like that, but, but it doesn't hurt to call these publications and just say, this is what you'd like to do. And ne that never hurts. And, you know, today people blog and they do all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's other ways of just getting yourself out, but out there. But the main thing is to get out there and start doing so that you can start to develop your voice and be able to, you know, say what you feel about what you saw on that stage. Such great advice there. Um, so we want to know, you know, we are all across the country in the midst of uh, holiday theater season. So mm -hmm. um, as we're getting ready to close out, I'd love for you to uh, share what you're planning to see December, January, what shows are on your radar, um, holiday shows and otherwise. Well, I know that um, there's going to be a show in December called The Night Before Kwanzaa. And I'm going to the production on December 20th. It's, it's going to be at the Schomburg. But then they're going to actually do it, um, I think, December 27th to, like, New Year's. So um, I'm not sure where it's going to be then, but I know the one on the 20th is going to be at the Schomburg. And then, um, you know, they're going to be doing The Wiz on Broadway. That's right. going to happen on um, March 2024. And then Home, which is a Sam R. Williams play, that's going to happen in the spring. And that's actually going to be at the American Airlines Theater. And that's going to be with Kenny Leon directing, which is going to be a total, total blast. You know, so I'm looking forward to all of those things. Well, Linda, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. And we are so grateful that you joined us on Off Script today. Um, for people who want to continue to read what you're writing, who want to follow you, where can they find you? Well, if they go to New York Amsterdam News and they look under theater, or they even look under A&E, because I cover things like Comic-Con too. I mean, I, I love Comic-Con. So 
um, they could look there. Um, they could go to Harlem, Harlem News, Harlem Community News, where I am the A&E editor and I've been doing uh, Blacks on Broadway, which is a feature where I um, have the headshots, the names and the roles of all the Blacks in all the Broadway shows. And I've been doing this for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, I also have like a regular theater column with the paper. Um, and then uh, there's something called broadwaysbestshows.com. I, I write for them as well. I mean, it's just different publications that, um, you know, online magazines and stuff like that, that I write for. So if they wanted to look that up, that would be cool. Also, um, I was in a film documentary called Women of Theater New York. And that is actually a DVD that can be purchased through uh, Walmart or on Amazon. And it was actually just um, licensed by Amazon Prime. So I'm really excited about that. It's myself and a lot of beautiful black actresses, actually. Um, and also um, Taria Joseph, who um, tends to act in black productions. So it's all of us in this, in this documentary on women of theater in New York. And it was such a wonderful thing to be a part of it. Um, also, if you wanted to look up stuff I can tell you a few things if you don't mind me just looking at this paper. I oh, again, I'm sorry about looking away, but um, let's see. Uh, oh my gosh, I have been on. Well, Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library had me participate in their public programming, and had me do an interview about being a theater critic. So that is on their YouTube channel, and um. There is something also called Black Mass Magazine, and I was the cover story. So if they wanted to look up Black Mass Magazine, they could look up um, when I was the cover story there. Um, and it, I mean, it's other stuff going on. I guess, you know, I don't want to, I feel kind of funny just talking about myself. That's just weird. Um, but I guess people could just look me up, <laughs> you know, if they just want to see. If you Google me, I, I know that stuff comes up, but I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> tend to talk a lot about myself. But definitely, if people um, want to come to BroadwayCon, you know, hopefully those panels will happen um, that I'm trying to do. And, um, you know, some of my past panels, I did a, a panel with Carrie Young um, for on her career. And I did a panel with um, some of the cast members from Fat Ham from when that was on Broadway, because that was amazing. Um, you know, like I said, did a panel with Thoughts of a Colored Man, um, did a panel with Stephen Bird and Aaliyah Jones Harvey, um, you know, with them being the, the premier Black Broadway producers. Um, did panels with um, Black playwrights, you know, Lynn Nottage, Dale Orlando Smith, Dominique Marisol, um, you know, uh, Donja Love, Patricia Ione Lloyd, you know, um, Jordan E. Cooper. I mean, just did a lot of different um, panels because, you know, as you mentioned, You've been part of Broadway Con. I started off there the second year in, a, in an actual uh, a panel called Everyone's a Critic. And I was the only Black critic on the panel. And I was actually asked to participate by the president of Drama Desk now, who is Charles Wright. And um, everybody was talking about what it means to be a theater critic, you know? And um, people were saying they were, these were theater critics from big papers from all over the country. And they were, you know, some of them were basically saying that, you know, if they don't like a play, they destroy it. And I don't look at the job like that. I think that 
you you're a critic to do constructive criticism and you're really there to help people keep jobs not to take their jobs away um and so i had a totally different demeanor when they asked me questions about how i view shows and what i do when i go to a show and when the panel was over charles came to me and he said linda thank you for being the humanity on that panel and i was like what <laughs> and he was like linda yes thank you and i was like you're, you're welcome charles you know so I mean, I love Broadway Con, but once I was on that panel and I asked them what was, what was another panel I could be on, they said, Linda, you can create your your own. And from then on, it's just been doing two, you know, at least two to three panels a year and doing it, spotlighting our people. And that's really what I want to continue doing any chance that I get to put that spotlight on our people and just let their talent their passion, their dedication, just shine for everybody to see and appreciate. Because what they do is not easy. And this is this is something they're gonna do till they die, you know? It's like you have a James Earl Jones who I'd interviewed when he was on Broadway, and he told me that with every performance, he would do something a little different. And I'm saying to myself, if this man is in his 80s and he's still honing his craft, you never mm -hmm. stop honing your craft. You know, not till they put you in the ground, you know, because there's always something you can do to make it a little better, make it a little different. And so I want people to realize that when you see people on that stage, they have really dedicated themselves to making your life better by enriching your life with the beauty and the power of their performances. And I so, so admire them and appreciate them for that. And all, like I said, the directors, the playwrights, because without a playwright, you wouldn't have anything on the stage anyway. You know, and then you have the director that brings everything together cohesively. All these things are important. And plays are really about reminding us of our humanity and reminding us of the important stories that we all need to share and grow from. Well, Linda Armstrong, it has been a pleasure having you on Offscript today. As Thank everyone you. has heard, you are booked and busy. And so all they need to do is Google you and you are out there. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you to thank everyone you. for listening to Offscript and we will see you all back in the new year. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.